Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this message, you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of God and grow in your love for God and love for others. It is God's desire for us to be members of and regularly participate in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you are not attending a local church right now, we encourage you to take that step. If you do live in the North York area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to visit us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings to discern if this is the church God is leading you to. Well, I want to talk uh, this morning about sin, and sin is a uh, a topic that's that's universally applicable. You know, sometimes you hear a message about a biblical manhood, and then the women think, "Well, I can check out right now." Or about about singleness, and all the married people can be like, "Well, this doesn't uh, apply to me." But when we talk about sin, this is universally applicable. It's applicable to us because it it affects us on a societal level. There are systems and structures in the way that our society is set up that are inherently sinful. And we deal with that on a daily basis. We deal with sin on a societal level. We also deal with it on an environmental, ecological level. The Bible tells us that all of creation is groaning under the weight of sin. If, if you woke up this morning, if you're somewhere north of 40 like me, and if you woke up stiff and sore and tired, that's a result of the curse. Adam and Eve sprung up out of bed every day before sin, but, but our world, our bodies are decaying. Our, our planet is falling apart as a result of sin, groaning for when Christ Return. So we experience the, re- the truth of sin on a societal level, on an ecological level. Uh, we also experience it on a personal level. And the personal level goes, goes both ways. There's, there's a way in which when we've been singing about uh, God's grace and God's mercy, God's holiness and God's throne, where we have a real consciousness of our own personal sin, our own times where the, God, where, where the word of God says this and we choose to go in a totally other direction and so sin is personal in that way. But there's also ways in which we have been sinned against and where there is a time where, where, there, where there, there comes a moment where rather than trying to take justice into our own hands, we have to trust that God is truly on his throne. So the, the, the truth about sin is that it affects all of us and it affects all of us in multiple ways. And what I want to do today is uh, kind of like, uh, you know, like a, like a hockey team, soccer team, a football team. I want to go into, I, I want to review some tape, okay? I want to watch what happened the, the first time sin entered into the world. I want to look at it from multiple different angles. I want to look at it in slow motion. I want to analyze the, the breakdown between humans and God and how it all started. The, the book of Genesis, Genesis means beginning, and so this is the beginning of sin, and it began with temptation, And I want to highlight this morning three things that happen when we give in to temptation that when, so that we can start to see it on the front end, so that we can see the allure of sin coming in the form of temptation and hopefully stop it before it starts. Here's, 
Here's the first thing uh, that I want us to recognize about temptation, is that temptation comes when we doubt in God's goodness. It all begins when we doubt in God's goodness. And that's how it began for Adam and Eve. And it started with this talking snake, verse one of chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? Now the, the book of Genesis is this, is this book of origin stories. We have the origin story of the, the universe and how God spoke it into existence. We have the origin story of uh, the man and the woman the origin story of marriage, but there's no origin story for the serpent. This talking snake just shows up out of of nowhere and we're just supposed to just go with it. I mean, we're told at the the very end of the Bible in uh, Revelation chapter 12, we're told, uh, we're given the identity that that this is the great dragon who was thrown down, the ancient serpent the serpent from Genesis 3, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28 and 2 Peter and uh, um, uh, the book of Jude, the, those, there's parts of those books that kind of act like prequels, like parts that were written after to help explain the origin story of the devil. But the book of Genesis makes one thing really, really clear. It says in verse one that the serpent was indeed more crafty, but he was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent was made by God. This isn't a Star Wars, light side of the force, dark side of the force, yin-yang dualism. No, the serpent, whether the serpent is some sort of reptilian avatar that like Satan like jumped into and took control of or, or, or it was, if this is somehow symbolic, we don't know, but we know that the serpent, the devil the, the, and Satan, the great dragon is a creature. God created Satan. And that's very important for us to understand but if we, if we want to be able to understand the Bible, the, 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 really the first step that we take in interpreting the Bible is not just to jump to what does it mean to me? What does the snake or the serpent or the devil, what does that mean for me? I've got some ideas. I saw some movies. I read a couple of books and, and uh, comic books mostly. But uh, I have some ideas about, about the devil. Well, we, we need to understand, well, what would this have meant for the original audience. Now Moses is writing to the escaped slaves who are journeying through the wilderness on their way to the promised land and they have just lived in slavery for four generations with their necks under the feet of Pharaoh. Now we know from archaeology, this is King Tut's headdress, um, uh, many digs have discovered what, what pharaohs wore. And then there's lots of pictures and images. And, but have you ever noticed what is at the very top of pharaoh's headdress? It's a snake. In Egyptian culture, the god Uraeus was the ultimate symbol of political power and authority. 
And so this serpent represents worldly power, worldly authority. When, when the Hebrew slaves or rescued Hebrew slaves are hearing this story with Pharaoh in the background and a serpent shows up, they're like, oh, this guy thinks he's in charge. This guy has some semblance of power and authority. And here's what he asks. He asked the question in verse one, did God actually say everywhere that Satan is working, he is bringing doubt and confusion and he brings doubt and confusion about God's word. Did God actually say, verse one, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now, notice here that Satan, if you're familiar with the Genesis story, God did not say he couldn't eat from any tree of the garden. He grossly exaggerates the prohibition. He replaces the word one. There's one tree they can't eat from, and he replaces it with all. You can't eat from any of the trees of the garden. And he also excludes the preamble of the command. In the preamble of the command, God had said, you may eat from all of the other trees, but Satan chooses to exclude that. Notice how the serpent here invites Eve to evaluate whether or not God is doing a good job ruling the universe. Eve is just going along. Everything's going fine. She's together with her husband. They're, they're working and keeping the garden together. They've got plans to be fruitful and multiply. And then Satan comes in and he introduces this idea that maybe God isn't doing this right. Maybe you started a new job and you've interviewed with the boss. Boss seems like a great guy. And maybe you're working outside, you know, on a work crew or something like that. And then you take a coffee break and the, the foreman has gone off somewhere else. And now the workers are talking. They're like, I don't know why we got to do it this way. And if I were in charge, you know, would I do it that way? Or maybe you, you got a new teaching position. And, but while the principal is away and you're there in the staff room and the, the teachers and the EA start talking about, why do we have this policy and so much paperwork and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Teachers don't talk like that. Sorry. If you're a teacher, don't want to offend you. Or maybe you, maybe you work in corporate and when the VP is gone, uh, you're, you're there in the break room and everyone is complaining about the boss. It's normal, isn't it? Complaining about the boss. That's what Satan's doing here. The only difference is, is that when you complain about your boss, you are a human being complaining about another fellow human being. And with the right amount of hard work and education and a little bit of luck, you could find yourself in the position of foreman or principal or vice president. But here we have two creatures who are talking about the creator, who have no business evaluating whether or not God is doing a good job. Verse two, Eve tries to clarify. She says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Eve gives this, this paraphrase, and I want you to picture it sort of like a, you know, like a Google Doc where you can see the edits, okay? So here's God's command on the left. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's Genesis 2, 16 and 17. But here on the right side, 
Look at Eve omits the important part. She omits the part that you may surely eat of every tree. So she omits the part about God's generosity. Then she adds something, neither shall you touch it. She makes the command more restrictive than it actually was. And then she also misses the part that says, you shall surely die, adding the word lest. Lest just means there's a possibility. Like on Remembrance Day, we say lest we forget. There's a a possibility that we would forget, but we don't, surely we, we wouldn't actually forget. So she adds this word, lest. You see, we can often do this with God's word. When we don't actually stop and look and listen to what God is saying, how often do you find yourself in a conversation with your spouse or with your kids? Or maybe you hear your spouse and your kids say this to you. You're nodding and saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, I got it, I got it, I got it. And you're not actually hearing. You're not actually listening. You have an Eve's little paraphrase. And unfortunately for Eve's paraphrase, she's forgetting God's abundant generosity. She's, she's omitted the part about God saying they can eat from any of the trees of the knowledge of good. She exaggerates God's strictness by saying you can't even, you could touch the fruit all you wanted. Walk up to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and touch it, go ahead. There's no rule about that. And then also she downplays the certainty of, just, of, of judgment. This idea that, that, well, maybe lest we die, not you shall surely die. Eve here was doubting God's goodness. Do you feel like God is holding out on you? This is what Satan wants Eve to believe, that, that God is holding out on her. Some of us have this idea that God is just up there, just making sure that no one's having too much fun. Hey, hey, turn the music down up there. Hey, what's with all this food and drink? Hey, sit in silence and enjoy your lukewarm water and stale graham crackers. That's the way God wants it. Just enough to get by. No, 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 no. God is an abundant God. They were allowed to eat from any tree of the garden. God did not just put one tree in the garden and say he couldn't eat from it. He gave them a garden full of trees. He created a sky full of stars. He created a world teeming with life and abundance. And he said, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all of it. God is not holding out on you. I love the way D.A. Carson kind of uh, pretends if, if, what if Eve had said something like this when she was tempted? So this is Eve speaking to uh, the serpent. Are you out of your skull? Look around. This is Eden. This is paradise. God knows exactly what he's doing. He made everything. He even made me. My husband loves me and I love him. And we are both intoxicated with the joy and holiness of our beloved maker. My very being resonates with the desire to reflect something of his spectacular glory back to him. How could I possibly question his wisdom and love? He knows in a way that I never can exactly what is best. And I trust him absolutely. And you want me to doubt him or question the purity of his motives and character? How idiotic is that? 
Besides, what possible good can come of a creature defying his creator and sovereign? Are you out of your skull? That's what we should say when we're faced with temptation. How many times do I wish that I had said that to Satan, to my flesh, to the world, rather than entertaining this idea that our God, who is so good, is somehow holding out on me. So we slow the tape down, we're analyzing what happened, and we recognize that it all started with, did God really say? And, and adding things like, oh, we better not touch it because I think God's you know, really restrictive. Doubting his goodness. Secondly, we deny God's word. We deny God's word. So Satan's been given an inch and now he's going to take a mile. He, he suggested the idea that God was holding out on Eve. And now he's just going to flat out lie. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He just flat out lies because that's what Satan does. John 8, 44, Jesus gives us the, 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 the truth about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Notice what the, what the lie is about. You will surely not die. He denies the judgment. He denies accountability. He denies consequences. Notice how he begins by putting Eve in the position of being able to judge God. Did God really say, and is this really right for God to be this restrictive? So he, ha he gives Eve this idea that she can judge God. And then he flips it around and says that God has no right to judge Eve. That if Eve were to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that God will not judge her and cannot judge her, that he, she surely will not die. You know, it's interesting. There's, in the last you know, 70 to 120 years, there's been a lot of controversy about uh, Genesis chapter 1 and creation, and evolution, and why? Why has our world been so obsessed with trying to disprove Genesis chapter one? And, and even, even the, the most robust scientific explanation, I studied history, I didn't, I didn't study science, but even the most robust explanations for the origin of the world still have a level of mystery that can only be explained by a supernatural being. So what, why do we want to remove God from the beginning? Here's why our world is obsessed with removing God from the beginning. Because if you remove him from the beginning, you also get to remove him from the end. And if there is no God who is creator, that means that there's no God who is judge. 
Because the issue in every human heart is not whether or not Genesis chapter one is true or not. The issue is whether Genesis three is true or not. Is God actually the judge? And are there actual consequences for our actions here on earth? And Satan wants us to think that there are no consequences. Satan is trying to get us to do whatever feels good in the moment. Whether we give in to anger, whether we give in to lust, whether we give in to gluttony, whether we give in to workaholism, whether we give in to addiction, whatever we are doing, we are doing whatever we think will make us feel good in the moment. And it often does make us feel good in the moment. But then what? You see, we're, we're so often just given the, the evidence of, 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 the un, of the coming judgment by the inherent shame and guilt that we feel, and then also the dysfunction that we bring into our lives when we allow anger or lust or addiction or workaholism or overeating or whatever it may be to come into our life. Often what we need to do when we're tempted is to follow that temptation all the way to the end. Satan just gets us to think about, you know, in excess, right here, right now. This is the only thing that matters. But just go beyond the right here and the right now and think about later. Think about explaining what you did to your parents or to your spouse or to your children. Picture yourself sitting down and saying, this is, what, this is how I handled that relationship at work, or this is how I handled my finances or my anger or my screen time. This is, this is what I did. Picture yourself, fast forward, play the tapes, and we're doing the slow-mo right now. Fast forward the tape to you sitting down with your spouse to talk about this. Because might, this might feel good right now, but talking about it later is not gonna feel good for you or for them. Picture having to explain it to your kids. Let that, let, play the whole scenario forward. And then beyond that, picture explaining yourself to God in view of all that he has given us out of his abundant goodness. Fast forward to the end and explaining yourself to God. Don't just live in the moment. Look at what Satan says in verse five. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Satan says, hey, listen, listen, I'm a whistleblower here. There is a system that has been set up to keep you low, Eve, and I'm, I am here to speak truth to power and I am here to let you know that God is holding out on you. And he knows, he knows that, if, that if, if the truth were to come out, which is really just a lie, but if you were to eat the fruit, you would be just like him and then it would be over for God. But 
we got to understand that Satan was trying to sell something to Eve that Eve already owned. You will be like God? Adam and Eve were already like God. Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The serpent was not made in God's likeness. Satan is trying to sell something that he doesn't have possession of to someone who already has possession of it. Now, Adam and Eve are not, could not become God. I mean, they, they could have knowledge of good and evil, but they're not omniscient like God. They can't handle the weight because they don't have all the information or the details or the consequences or everything. They are not wired. We were not created to have the knowledge of good and evil the way that God does because we can't handle it. But Adam and Eve were already like God. So he creates this, this false scenario that God is somehow holding back and restricting the fruit. And here's the reason why he's holding back, because you'll become just like him. It's a lie. It's denying God's word. Then that brings us to the, the third thing that happens when we give into temptation. It's this. Thirdly, we give into temptation when we desire God's throne. When we desire God's throne. Verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Three things are said about uh, the fruit. Uh, the first two are irrelevant. Only the third one is relevant. Some people think, oh, it was good for food. You know, maybe, uh, maybe Eve was like a health nut, you know, sort of a granola type person. And she thought, oh, that fruit I think is high in antioxidants and, so, and, and, and good natural sugar. So I, I, should, I should eat this and that it was good for food. That, that's actually irrelevant. I'll tell you why in a second. Um, also that it was, uh, the, or maybe she was a foodie, you know, oh, I can take this fruit and turn it into a, a reduction and get some artichoke hearts and avocado paste and, and, and put it on, you know, one leaf of a, of a dandelion and it'll be so great. It's good for food. No, that's not it. Some of us think that Eve just had an eye for the aesthetic and she was just so struck by the beauty of the fruit that she just, that she just had to have it. The goodness for food and the delight to the eyes was absolutely irrelevant. And, and let, me, let me show you why. This is the one column over in your Bible. So Genesis 3 says that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit was good for food and a delight to the eyes. If you read one column over in chapter 2, verse 9, it says that every tree in the garden was good for food and pleasant to the sight. Word for word had nothing to do with the fruit itself. What pushed Adam and Eve over the edge? That the tree was to be desired to make one wise. The knowledge of good and evil and becoming like God. That is what pushed them over the edge. The desire for God's throne. That word desire as well for the original audience would have really struck a chord. The Hebrew word there is hamad. 
I'm not a Hebrew expert. I just love to say a little chach when I, when I say chamad, you know? That's why I, like, I don't even like hummus. I just like to say hummus, you know? That word chamad, that, that she desired it, that would have caught the Hebrew audience's attention because they had just heard that word thundered down from Mount Sinai in the 10th commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not hamad. You shall not covet. You shall not desire your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. It's the desire. The desire to have something that's not yours. The desire to have the throne that only belongs to God. If, you know, obviously, if you desire your neighbor's wife, that's like a non-starter. But if you need some help and you want your neighbor's servants to help you, or if you want your neighbor's ox or his donkey, don't just sit there desiring it. Don't go and try and steal it. What should you do? Just go and ask your neighbor. And what's true about our neighbor is true about wisdom, is true about the fruit of the tree. If Adam and Eve truly wanted knowledge of good and evil, if they truly wanted to be wise, should they go to the tree or should they go to the one who planted it? You see, the, the book of Romans gives us this kind of Wikipedia a summary of of how all of this played out. It says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him for all of the trees that were good for food, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, claiming to eat from the fruit that was gonna make them wise, they became fools. You see, we have the knowledge of good and evil now, we, we, we have the map, but we don't know which way is north, and we don't have a clue what any of the landmarks mean. We, we don't have the capacity. We're not omniscient. We're not God. We don't know how to handle the knowledge that we have. We, what Adam and Eve wanted was to be like God. What Adam and Eve wanted was to be able to make decisions some people think that Adam and Eve were just flat out rebels. They weren't rebels. The, the, the goal for them was not lawlessness, it was legislation. They weren't being merely law breakers. They wanted to be law makers. And we see this happen again and again in our society. Our society continually is, is, is talking about breaking chains and setting people free. And yet our society is always making rules. Have you, have you just noticed that in, in the sexual revolution that's happening right before our eyes? In the name of just complete freedom and everyone can do whatever they want to do, have you noticed how many rules are being created along the way? We, we, we are not just lawbreakers. We're lawmakers. We want to be on God's throne as human beings. It says uh, in, at the end of verse six that 
Uh, Eve gave the fruit to the man who was with her. Uh, some of us might have read in you know, college uh, uh, classes, uh, uh, John Milton's uh, Paradise Lost, which sort of describes that uh, Adam was like on the far other side of the garden while all of this was taking place and that Eve ate the fruit and then she kind of just gave it to Adam and said, hey, eat it. And Adam's like, okay, I'll just, yeah, I'll just do what my wife says. And he just eats it. It says here that, that Adam was with her. Uh, the Hebrew word there is imha. Uh, it, it means very close. In fact, uh, a number of times that it's used in the Old Testament, it describes sexual intimacy. So Adam couldn't have, you, you can't do that far away. Uh, so Adam and Eve were, they couldn't have been any closer at, at, the, at that moment. And remember, the instructions for Adam in Genesis 2 verse 15 is he put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. He was there to work the garden, but keep it. Keep is not like upkeep, like repair the drywall or do some paint or that sort of thing. Uh, keep it means guard it, like a goalkeeper in soccer. Their job is to stop the ball from getting in the net. Adam was supposed to stop serpents from slithering up and speaking lies. And Adam failed in his, the, the conversation. Well, Eve could have given the, are you out of your skull speech? Adam could have given the get off my porch talking snake speech. Because his job was to keep the garden, to guard the garden, but he failed, didn't open his mouth. Verse seven says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their eyes were opened. They didn't like what they saw, though. They had to cover themselves with fig leaves. The, the scary thing about how this story plays out is that uh, some of what Satan said would happen actually came true. They didn't become like God because they already were God. But they did end up having some knowledge of good and evil they didn't die instantly, maybe as they were expecting to, as soon as they ate uh, the fruit. You see, the thing about lies is every effective lie is really just a half truth. Satan did not say, if you eat from the fruit, you'll turn into a purple dinosaur. That, that's not what he said, because <laughs> that's, that's insane. And so it's actually kind of scary. Let me show you here in a chart. Uh, let's go to the next slide. He said, you will surely not die. They didn't die immediately. He said, your eyes will be opened and their eyes were opened. He said, you will be like God knowing good and evil. And God acknowledges at the end of the chapter that man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. So these half truths did come true. But they ended up having to hide from one another. Satan didn't say that. And then they had to hide from God among all of the trees that he had given them that were good for food. They had to hide among those and stay away from God. T. Desmond Alexander uh, makes reference to this. He says, in light of their royal status and divine commission, royal status as having, bearing the image of God, and their divine commission to fill the earth and to subdue it and to have dominion. Adam and Eve were created to be king and queen of the world. 
And in light of their royal status and their divine commission to rule over the animals, it's especially noteworthy that Adam and Eve obey the serpent's instructions rather than those of God, should be a capital G. By submitting to the serpent, Adam and Eve fail to exercise their God-given dominion over this crafty animal. You see, there's a, there's a reversal here. This is how God set up. Let me show you here in a chart. It was, there's God who's supposed to rule over humans and then the humans are supposed to rule over animals. But here we have an animal, a serpent, who's telling the humans what to do so that they can somehow have authority over God. The whole thing is inverted. Satan is always trying to disrupt and invert God's intention and design for humanity. But in verse eight, nine, it says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They had the knowledge of good and evil. They're supposed to be like God now. They're supposed to be equal with God. Then why are they hiding? Because they don't have the capacity. Because they've sinned. Because they've crossed the boundary that God had laid for them. They hid themselves in the presence of God among the trees of the garden, all those trees that God had given them. Verse nine, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, God knew exactly where <laughs> Adam and Eve were because he is om omniscient and he does have the knowledge of good and evil and he knew the evil that they had done. But he came looking for them. And the question was not for God's benefit. The question was for their benefit. When you go looking for your toddler after they got some, their hands on some Skittles, right? You find uh, some Skittles and some uh, food coloring uh, squashed into the floor in the, in the kitchen and you follow it up the steps to their room. And uh, when your toddler finds some Skittles that they're not supposed to eat, they don't walk up to you and go, Look, look what I'm doing, right? No, there's, a sense, there's an inherent sense of shame. So they, they go, you know, like into that little, that tiny little space between their dresser and their bed and they're sitting there and they're, they're just getting filled with sugar. And the mom patiently walks into the room and says, oh, where are you? And what are you doing? Why does mom do that? Because mom's trying to create a dialogue, trying to create a conversation, trying, trying to encourage confession and repentance. The questions are not for mom's benefit. The questions are for the benefit of the child. God came looking and God came asking questions. And God came looking most clearly through his son, Jesus Christ who found himself in the wilderness after 40 days and 40 nights. And then we have another appearance of the talking snake, the tempter, the devil, Satan. And in Luke chapter four, look what, uh, look what the devil says. It says, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to you, said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me. Now, often we skip over that part and then we talk about how we got to memorize the Bible to fight temptation and that's good. But have you ever just stopped to wonder, delivered to me? 
How, were, how was all of the authority and the glory of all of the kingdoms of the world delivered to Satan? Who made that delivery? Who closed that deal? It was the ones who were given the glory of having the image of God, the ones who were, who were given dominion over the whole world. It was Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve gave Satan all authority over all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory and have been delivered to him. And it says, and I give it to whom I will. He once gave it to a guy with a snake in his headdress named Pharaoh. Later, he was gonna give it to the Romans. Now, now, now he's given it to someone else. But it was offered to Jesus. It says, I'll give it to you if you will worship me and it will be yours. And Jesus, who's being tempted, again, Jesus is in the wilderness He's not in the garden. Adam and Eve could have reached out and grabbed a piece of fruit and ate it while being tempted by Satan. Jesus is starving, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And he says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord God and him only shall you serve. You see, Jesus succeeded where Adam and Eve failed. Jesus succeeded where you and I failed. Jesus is indeed the sinless savior that we sung about today. And we can come before his throne of grace. And we can come before his throne of grace for temptation on the back end when we've given in to sin. And we can come before his throne of grace to temptation on the front end when we feel tempted to sin as well. Now, I, I could take you to Romans chapter five or 1 Corinthians 15, and we could talk about the theological interconnections of Adam and Jesus, the man of dust and the man of heaven and the first Adam and the second Adam. But I just wanna take you to one more place in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter four, verse 15 and 16. It says, we do not have a high priest, I loved singing about this this morning, who was unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are tempted as Adam and Eve were tempted, tempted as you and I are tempted, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that throne that we desire, that throne that really is at the core of all sin, wanting to be like God, wanting to make the rules, that throne of grace that we may receive his mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. You see, there's two, there's two reasons why we can go to the throne of grace. One is to receive mercy. When we're tempted and we gave in and we need mercy. But there's another way that we can go to the throne of grace, to find grace to help in a time of need. We can come before the throne of grace when we're struggling with temptation, when we're struggling with doubting the goodness of God or denying his word or desiring his throne, we can come before that very throne and say, God, you belong on your throne. Help me to live in a way that brings honor and glory to you. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our heavenly father, this is, this is a, a heavier uh, message, but it's a hopeful message because Jesus has indeed been tempted in every way and yet without sin. We thank you that he succeeded where Adam failed. 
and that death that Adam and Eve deserve and that you and I deserve, that, sorry, that all of us deserve, Lord. Jesus bore the penalty, took on that death as a substitute for us so that we can come before your throne of grace. Lord, we pray for your ongoing grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, church. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit hopetorontonorth.com.